0: Hello and welcome to episode two of season two of Riding Unicorns. Uh, Hector and I are really excited about this one, so we'll get straight into it. This week, we're delighted to have Juliette Suleiman, VC Investor at MMC Ventures on the podcast. Welcome to Riding Unicorns, Juliette.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
0: Great. So we always like to start with a quick background on your career to date and how you ended up at MMC Ventures.
1: Yeah, I guess, uh, fair, fair. So Juliette Limon, I guess I, I like to call myself a failed entrepreneur. I tried a couple of times to, to build my startup and never quite got to the scale that I wanted, which was, you know, Steve Jobs 2.0 um, with a French accent, I guess. And so started two really humble companies quite early on, um, one at university and one straight after university. And then eventually made my way uh, to to the VC industry. I started as a VC investor at uh, Octopus Ventures, focusing mainly into fintech, intertech, blockchain value proposition. Uh, Did a small transition to one of their portfolio company, a fintech company, where uh, I was a chief commercial officer into an income sharing agreement uh, platform. And eventually, when I went back to VC at MMC Ventures, where I'm a VC investor and where I invest still in relatively uh, fintech uh, and intratech AV kind of uh, value proposition.
2: What tempted you away from VC initially?
1: I think the fact that, you know, as uh, I have... I was an entrepreneur before and you have like this one baby, which is great, but uh, it's a little bit uh, schizophrenic as well. You're super, super fo- focused on on that one uh, value proposition. And I was like, wait a minute, you can have a portfolio of 60, 80 companies and look at it from a, from a 360 view. I thought it was really cool. wanted to uh, get my my hand in multiple pie uh, and uh, that was very much uh, by, by curiosity and probably by greed, clearly, like wanted to, to be involved in as many companies as I could be
2: so were you involved in the company that you then joined as an investor
1: well as an investor you i guess you're always involved to to a certain extent by being either point of contact or observer etc but uh yeah i joined one of the company we we invested at my previous uh, company i joined them as a chief commercial officer one of their investments and portfolio companies which was fun <laughs> <laughs>
0: and how do you think the experience of sitting on the, the founding or the working on the operator side of startups has helped with being an investor
1: I think the the most uh, you truly understand what you want as like a friend, entrepreneur friendly VC, which is probably one of the world that is the most overrated and throw in every single conversation that you can find. Be, you know, like I, I truly value investors that uh, are truly added value, which is another word that is also thrown on and on and on. What does that mean to be an added value investor? So I think it's about understanding what is truly a good investor to be an investor that is there from, you know, bad time and good time, capable of. of Opening up the network and also just to spend time with a startup because you know it's so easy to uh, <laughs> to not take the time. It takes time. It takes focus. It takes effort, and uh, and you need to find uh, investors that are capable of of bringing you all of that uh, to the table. 100.
2: So, what do you think makes good advice um, for a founder as an investor? Is it being counsel? Is it being someone who you can turn to as a founder to speak to when? Things get tough and you know they can actually talk honestly or is it more about the strategy and making connections to the right people
1: i think it's definitely sector expertise and clearly clearly finding an, an investor that clearly understand what you do uh believe in what you do and uh, understands the value chain i mean it's about how can you be how can you have an investor that is as helpful as possible being able to open up uh, their network and i think the sector expertise is the number one key i think there is nothing more terrible for an entrepreneur that to arrive and to have to explain those keywords of their own industry i think it's it's uh, it's not uh, it's not uh, the best the second one which i don't think it's a, the best advice ever it is uh you know people have always told me oh don't take things personally i think that vc it's such a personable type of experience and you need to build relationship it's just a relationship game and i think you need to find the, entre- the VC and the entrepreneurs that take, do take things personable. I think it's such a passionate, uh, at the same time, uh, type of uh, type of experience and, and relationship.
0: Absolutely. And it, is there a, a sort of common mistake that founders make when pitching you or presenting their business that you think if more founders did this, they'd have a better chance of raising money?
1: The first meeting is probably one of the most important meetings for the entrepreneur, and it's a meeting uh, for me it's a teaser you need to tease the investor to spend time and resources on clearly understanding your business you don't want to explain entirely to the gritty meaty of the business on on day one and so I think uh, one of the key mistakes that I see uh, on and on is probably entrepreneurs that uh, want to do too much during that first meeting and, and get to the very technical or get into the pipeline explanation which is absolutely not at all what you want to do you really want to be like the biggest teaser on earth when you are at that first meeting
0: yeah hector do you feel sort of similar with that yeah i completely agree
2: well i'm always interested to hear people's perspectives on this but i think that it kind of there's a journey with fundraising and the deck is the, the the sole purpose of the deck is to get a first meeting it should be optimized for that purpose, because founders sometimes end up optimizing for closing an investment just from their deck, and they end up putting way too much detail in it, which Julia, I think is what you're kind of referring to as well, because it, the same um, thing happens in first meetings. But then, yeah, I think at, at first meeting, founders do want to be optimizing for, maybe they want to get the partner meeting, or they just want to tease the investor, make them think that this is such a big opportunity that they, they can't miss out on it. Would you agree with that around the sort of size of the opportunity being a key key thing that founders need to convince investors of?
1: Yeah, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess so. Uh, and I think uh, size of the opportunity. Obviously, you want to be personable again. Going back to this relationship piece, especially at early stage, where you want to show personality and show vision. Yeah, and uh, yeah, absolutely agree with you, Victor.
2: So, have you have you ever invested in someone that you don't like?
1: Yeah. Um, I see you don't well,
2: have to name names.
1: <laughs> I, will, I will not. Well I will <laughs> try. I see certain investors that are capable of really doing this uh, dichotomy between uh, the personality and the and the fact and the judgmental of like, are you going to be an amazing entrepreneur or not? I, In all honesty, I've got a harder time to do that uh, differentiation. Again, I still think that entrepreneur is not so much as an entrepreneur, you don't too much differentiate with your personality and the working dates. You you form one with all those, those two. I still think that your personality is super important. I, I judge the way that you will attract and retain talent and to be fair, if I feel that you're a bit of a, uh, pardon my French, but a bit of an asshole, I don't know if, I, if I'm allowed to say the word on a, a live, but, you know, I, I would probably stay away from that deal, honestly, uh, which might be a wrong move. Uh, I will send it uh, your way, uh, Hector, if, if you want those, those rejects.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Julia. Yeah, give me some nice meetings. No, it's interesting because, I mean, I'd love to see some analysis. I wonder if they're it's quite qualitative analysis I suppose but seeing is it the bulldozer characters who make successful businesses or is it the super coachable ones and my suspicion is that there are elements of both which are really important it's kind of the strong opinions lightly held thing and you need to be as a founder resolutely focused on on building a huge business but also as you say able to make strong relationships because they're going to
0: be key yeah it's interesting we've got quite a few companies that we've worked with through Pringle Capital help them raise money. And all all of the founders are really nice, except one (laughs) and is a really difficult character, but they're probably doing the best out of all the companies. And the reason I give that founder a bit more kind of rope and free reign to kind of not be as friendly and a bit difficult to communicate with and things like that is they're the right sort of character for that business. That may stop being true at some point, but for now, whilst they're taking on this big industry and disrupting it and very much speaking badly of the incumbents and things like that, they need that war room attitude, which is interesting to see his personal character leading a business with that kind of brand ethos.
1: I think you, when you look at probably certain of the um, American uh, role models, which are not the nicest uh, people on earth, probably are not well known to be the nicest people on earth, but uh, are still probably one of the most idolated uh, people. I think it's something that uh, us as a society, and specifically us as VC, need to be slightly careful. I honestly don't think that you need to be. Uh, I don't think you need to have an aggressive personality. I don't think you need to cut throat to win. I think you need to be extremely focused. I think you need to be extremely mission driven. And I think you need to specifically build an amazing culture to be able to build the next most successful business, or at least probably, I mean, I'm obviously biased, right? Like obviously if you're, you, you can still build massive businesses without those kind of criteria, but me, the type of business that I want to invest I want to invest in people that are capable of, of you know, building an amazing culture. And I take really, really great pride at picking my in my entrepreneur uh, through that lens and through that criteria, 100%. And I'm 100% biased uh, toward entrepreneurs that are slightly more coachable versus, as you mentioned, uh, Hector uh, Bulldog, which personally scared me a little bit. <laughs> yeah.
2: No, I think, that's, I think that's really interesting. And at the end of the day, you know, it's a 10-year-plus relationship and... There are, aside from the business that that founder is running and building, there are potentially other benefits to investing in people you get along well with, people who are nice, the sort of network effect in that you've invested in them, you have a relationship very well pass, great deals onto you in the future, all of that stuff. And they're the sort of intangibles outside of the business itself. But Interested to dive into your sort of specialism a little bit and, and blockchain has become a real buzzword um, and everything that we see and read about is, is blockchain in, in some way. I think I saw a blockchain-enabled subscription sock company. <laughs> um, so interested to hear about what you see as the real use cases, what, what's going to touch us in everyday lives that blockchain can make better. And what are you most excited about?
1: So I, I like the fact that you pick on the blockchain, whereas like I was hoping you would pick on the uh, fintech and ancient tech, because I, I guess I've got quite a weird view on, on the sector while being an investor in this sector. But
0: yeah. I think
1: blockchain, I totally agree that it's such a buzzword. And for me, I never quite, for me, blockchain, you know, it existed. It's an infrastructure play. It's just a ledger where you, nothing new. I think it was I think in the sixties it uh, was created and uh, it just got popularity by in the, in with crypto. Uh, so in terms of blockchain, I'm not. There says that exactly. I think there are a couple of very interesting use cases that you have in the background and that you can use from an architecture point of view. But the way that I look at it is more that if an entrepreneur would tell me like I'm creating this app or this value proposition and I, and I code with Python or I use aws as my cloud or whatever or or, or i use ethereum or, or blockchain or whatever it's a, for me it's a very like infrastructure play more than anything else uh you can only be intrigued by what is happening with uh specifically the DeFi world right where crypto is is going and i think we will see a couple of very, very interesting companies, specifically in terms of how do you democratize this technology and how do you institutionalize, even if the true and pure crypto lover would hate me for saying that, but I think it's where the the, the industry is going to go and where at MMC Ventures we're very interested in in making bets.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, Could you maybe touch on a couple of companies that you have invested in and some of the thought process as to why they were investable.
1: Yeah, so actually, Copper just got uh, announced yesterday, so I can talk about this one. Copper is this uh, big uh, custodian for crypto, specifically targeted at financial institutions, which I think it's a massive step in stone in terms of if you truly want to democratize crypto, institution, financial institutions will need to be part of the game. Either you like it, either you don't like it, but I think it's where where it's going to go. And, and I think Copper is, is doing this backend infrastructure on one end on regulation, on another other end on like infrastructure play that is super interesting. They just raised a big Series B. We're super excited about them, and I think it's a, it's definitely one to watch.
2: I that's super interesting. I, I saw Copper, and yeah, I thought it looked like a great deal. Part of what I think is interesting in DeFi is more recently people have been moving away from calling their companies Bit whatever and having Bit in the name, and I think that's I think that's a really important move to make this all mainstream? Because I think while Bit is in the name of whatever company you're talking about, there's like a, there's a kind of, you're going to be more appealing to early adopters, the, the crypto heads, the people who buy Bitcoin really early. Would you agree with that? That to, to get to the mainstream people, it, it needs to see more normal and the, the blockchain infrastructure behind it and the, the crypto needs to be kind of under the hood.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. I think there is a piece of education. At first, I I was very bullish about the technology and specifically Bitcoin. Then I lost uh, all my pocket money in 2018 uh, winter and stupidly take it out. And then then I was like, okay, I'm never going to touch it again. I hate that sector. But the truth is, when you look at at Bitcoin and crypto, I think the big, big, big brand plays to say, okay, we're democratizing and we are decentralizing wealth, which I think it's a super interesting uh, uh, subject. But truth is, are we from an unstructured play? Yes. But who owns crypto? Who owns Bitcoin? Who owns those? And who understands it as well, right? We live in London. We're a VC investor in fintech. Yes, we understand it. But I mean, my mom has no idea what, what, what Bitcoin and, and blockchain is, right? And I, I think this is the true gap of like the mass adoption of that technology that is happening. And I don't think it's decentralization if or, or and, and democratization if you're not capable of mainstreaming those terms and mainstreaming the use case of it. So I still think it's very niche, and I still think that the technology did decentralize it probably from central bank, but re-centralize it to the geek tech people to a certain extent, if you want to call it that, like that, which, um, by the way, are nearly 99% male, which would be terrific if this would be the true decentralization of wealth because you would literally come from... Um, a, a, a wealth distribution that wasn't really fair from like a just John the balance to an, another one that is and I'm only talking about John the balance here but you, you could you could break it down in so many other way of diversifying those profiles I still think that blockchain has as a big diversity and centralized issue in terms of like the people who truly understand it and truly benefit from it and this is where this is a big problem in my in my opinion in this industry and this is where i'm very on the look for companies that are capable of streamlining that process democratizing truly that process educating etc if that answer your question i think
2: i think it does so i suppose what you're getting at is we need to create products and services and companies that are more appealing to a diverse range of people. Um, So how do you think a company can do that? How do you think a company can optimize for diversity amongst their users?
1: I think simply, I I still think that the simplicity is, uh, is key, seamless in simplicity in the product building. But if you want to talk uh, broader, right, in fintech, I just think that uh, you need to also have a diverse crowd of, uh, <laughs> of people that you invest in as well and diverse funders that will understand different demographies and that will uh, be spot on in terms of targeting them as well.
2: Yeah, really interesting. Just to um, zoom out a little bit and understand what drives you. As a founder who's turned into a VC, Um, I'm interested to understand what what it is that gives you job satisfaction is it do you feel that at MMC you can um, there are projects that you see come to fruition and that you feel like you are still building even while um, being an investor or is there something else that that gives you satisfaction in your job as an investor.
1: I think that uh, being a venture capitalist is a, a capitalist is a very privileged job in a way that you get to uh, work with some of the smartest and most revolutionizing individual. And probably I'm romantizing uh, the, the job uh, as one should do, right? A little bit. But uh, I, I think you're in a privileged position of having this thought process of what is going to be the future of payment, what is going to be the future of mobility, the next, five ten years and i really really think that this process is super super interesting and, and fascinating truly and and to be involved with the people that are trying to you know ch- check the statu quo of of mobility of payment or or whatever you know sector you're looking at i think it's just a very privileged position to to be in and just by curiosity it's infinite uh, infinite curiosity so i guess that's what give me the the satisfaction to be with the, Surrounded with very very smart uh, people that want to change things.
2: Yeah, uh, no, very- I completely agree. Yeah. I th- I think the um maybe it all comes crashing down in ten years when we realise that we got it all wrong.
1: <laughs> That's fine. Ten years, I'm I'm still I've got it done. Perfect. <laughs>
0: there was something in there that you touched on around the future, and when you look at valuations, there's a lot, there's quite a lot of chat at the moment about valuations being too high, but then if you compare them to the US. They're quite reasonable. And we've seen most recently companies like Hopin and Kazoo just raise incredibly aggressive, very large rounds and sort of almost like grow into those opportunities based on the amount of funding they've had. Do you think we'll see more and more of that? And do you think valuations still have a way to go and size rounds will continue to increase and things like that?
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I guess it's the price of, first of all, it's the price of of the market. So it's not too high, too low if there is demand and supply for it. I think it's just, the demand for the, you know, the, the the fair price. I would say that as a as a flag for entrepreneur, I think that first of all, I think there is a misconception in the industry about valuation, where you know, entrepreneurs want the highest valuation as possible, and on the other hand, VC want the lowest valuation as possible. I don't think that's true. Both parties should seek the fair value uh, and the of the business. I think there is nothing worse for an entrepreneur to raise at a super high valuation that is inflated and uh, imagine the stress that it puts on, on the entrepreneur to have to, in the, eight, in the next 18 months, first of all, eat that true valuation and then double it down. It's it's crazy. And it's actually one of the number, one reason why business uh, and startup dies. And uh, I can tell you that there is nothing worse in the market to have a down round at the moment uh, for, for, for an entrepreneur. So... I think I think it's it's a it's a very strategic point for both for the entrepreneur and for the investor to have the very fair valuation for for the business. Now you know the market is is pretty bullish at the moment, and, and um, both parties should play with it. I would always prefer to overpay for uh, the next massive businesses and uh, not pay for it because I think it's too expensive and, and just uh, be uh, on the side of the road for, for the for the journey. But yeah. Um, do I think it will continue? Probably not at some point, yeah.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting topic when these companies are coming to IPO and getting to public markets, maybe they have a pretty um, nasty reckoning um, awaiting them. That's the question about valuations, isn't it? It's like, is this actually sustainable in terms of the returns that VCs are seeking?
0: Yeah, I, but then if you couple that with the amount of, us firms that are no, now opening you at the uk or european offices i think there's probably still quite a long way until there's that correction so julia at the when we get to the latter stages of these um podcasts we like to ask guests if they were to have a business lunch with three people who would be on their list
1: okay i guess i would go with uh, probably uh, michelle obama I think she would be a cool person to lunch with. Yeah,
0: good one. We haven't had her.
1: Um, I probably pick uh, Kay West as well. Uh, I think he's just have the best music ever. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he must be a crazy person to talk to. And I would love to, to, to have a chat with him. Um, and, uh, and my mother <laughs> on the emotion.
2: Would she I've get along her. well with Kanye and Michelle?
1: she would uh, she doesn't speak a word of english but i will still take (laughs) her Um, but i haven't seen her since the lockdown so i uh, that that would be my my trio
0: (laughs) yeah um well juliet thank you so much it's been great chatting to you and there's there's lots more we could touch on but it's been great to get a bit of insight into your life as a vc what you're kind of looking for how you see the market and, and things like that so thank you so much for spending the time with us and um yeah, we wish you all the best with MMC.
1: Okay, cool, thank you very much for having me.
0: Thanks, Juliet. Great stuff there from Juliet. Always interesting to hear from someone that has operator and VC experience, and it was great to get her take on blockchain. This week's startup spotlight is Otter. O-T-T-A otter is the only job search that does you justice So go and find your new role at the next Unicorn. Thanks very much for listening and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform for more episodes.